We are going to be looking at the first five verses of chapter 3 tonight, but I want to take this time to walk through uh, this letter just by way of review. Paul has written this second letter to the Thessalonians and instructs them in the process of that, but he also instructs us. He instructs us about the need to grow in faith in God and to grow in our love for one another. You know, the Thessalonians were already doing those things, but there was a need for them to continue and to continue to grow. That's the way that our sanctification works. We never quite arrive until we're glorified. He also encouraged them to remain steadfast in the face of increasing opposition for the sake of Christ. And remember, he used, he pointed toward the future judgment of God as a motivation for that. He talked about the very different outcomes for these two different groups. Those who oppose Christ and persecute his followers in this life will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. While those who follow Christ in this life and endure that tribulation and persecution will get rest. We get the benefit, the reward of eternal life in the presence of God forever in a new heavens and new earth, free from the presence of sin and its curse. As we get to chapter 2, we see that Paul has to deal with misunderstandings about the day of the Lord. The persecution had gotten so bad and false teaching had entered in to the effect that the day of the Lord had already come. And Paul says, not so, because you don't see two things. One, you don't see this great apostasy that will happen, not just individual apostasies that have happened over the life of the church, but a massive turning away from, from people who had professed some allegiance to Christ initially. And secondly, you don't see yet the revelation of the man of lawlessness, the false Christ. He, he will be the one to arise to prominence during the last half of the tribulation period, the last three and a half years of that seven-year period. He'll be a ruler over the whole world, including both its religious, political, and economic systems. Second Thessalonians 2 is one of the places, besides the book of Revelation, that we get the most information about this false Christ. Paul goes on to describe the character of that false Christ as one that's energized by Satan himself, who is the ultimate counterfeiter. And as part of his judgment against those who rejected the gospel, God will send a deluding influence upon those that are on the earth so that they'll believe what is false. They'll embrace the false Christ as truth for them. They'll worship him. They'll worship Satan, who's the adversary of God. And the reign of that false Christ will dominate the entire world for a period of three and a half years. But his end is sure. In fact, he's called the son of destruction. We talked about the fact that that really is describing his destiny. It's what will happen to him at the end of his reign. Christ will come from heaven with his army of saints accompanying him. Uh, but there will be no long protracted warfare. Christ will simply, by the word of his mouth, slay the false Christ and all those armies that are gathered together with him. He'll cast both the false Christ and the false prophet into the lake of fire that burn, burns with brimstone. Chapter 2 ends with Paul giving thanks to God for the difference between the fate of those who will go through this time of great tribulation and the domination by the false Christ and the fate of those who have believed in the true Christ in this age. We've been chosen by God from the beginning before the foundation of the earth, according to Ephesians 1, for salvation. And as believers, we're being continually sanctified by God through his spirit who indwells us, through faith in his truth, which is his word, until the day when we'll be glorified with Christ. 
First and Second Thessalonians talk a lot about those issues, about ultimate glorification with Christ and the things that happen at the very end that lead to that glorification. Well, that leads us to chapter 3. We'll look at the first five verses tonight. I want to just say a few words about the character of this passage as a whole before we look at the text itself. Paul has already dealt with several matters of eschatology in this letter, and one more is still to come at the end of chapter 3. We'll look at that next week. But he opens chapter 3 by asking that they pray for him. He's prayed for them at the end of chapter 2, and he asks for prayer for them, that is, for him and his co-workers, Silas and Timothy, as they continue their work of spreading the gospel. And he also encourages them and what they're to be about as Christians, awaiting the return of Christ before taking up this last matter of instruction at the end of chapter 3. So that's something that's very relevant for us. These five verses are very relevant for us as to what we're to be about as we look forward to the return of Christ. And these five verses also reveal Paul's heart as a shepherd for these believers. They're very relevant again for us and for what your shepherds, as the leadership of this church, wants for each of you. So we want to frame this passage as one that provides five characteristics of a godly life. You have your outline before you that reflects that, and we'll read the passage now and work through it one characteristic at a time. Second Thessalonians 3, verses 1 through 5. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it did also with you, and that we may be delivered from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one, And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. And may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. So the first characteristic of a godly life that we see in this passage is that it has a missions mindset. Paul opens chapter 3 by saying, brethren, pray for us. Again, us here is Paul and Timothy and Silas. It's a present tense command, that is, Start praying and keep praying for us. It was very much characteristic of Paul to ask for prayer from those that he ministered to, his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and especially for the work that he was doing with his co-workers of spreading the gospel across the Roman Empire. We'll look at just a few other examples of that. Uh, He writes to the Romans in chapter 15. Now, I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me that I may be delivered from those who are disobedient in Judea. Notice the the similarity to the language here in 2 Thessalonians 3. And that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. To the Ephesians, he writes in Ephesians 6, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints, and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. And then to the Colossians, he says, in chapter 4, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God may open for us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I also have been in prison. Now, as great as Paul was as a servant of God, a man mighty in the scriptures, who received direct revelation from Christ himself, who had the boldness of a lion when he proclaimed the gospel, and the steadfastness of a soldier 
when it came to suffering hardship, as much as Paul exemplified all those things, he depended upon the prayers of his fellow saints and especially upon the God who answered those prayers. He recognized that, that he needed that to accomplish his mission. And note that the content of the prayer he requests is focused on the spread of the gospel. He asked the, pre- he asked the Thessalonians to pray specifically for two things. First, that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be glorified. And certainly that had already happened, right? Paul's in the middle of his second missionary journey. He's already traveled to many different towns, proclaimed the gospel, and established churches. In his first letter, Paul spoke about the reception that the gospel had in Thessalonica itself. He says in in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, The word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we have with you and how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. So despite the fact that the gospel is spread already, Paul recognizes there's still a long way to go. There's still many places that need to be evangelized and many places where churches need to be planted. He wants the gospel to spread rapidly, to run freely is the idea here, without hindrance to all these places. And as it reaches those places... He wants it to be recognized for what it is, to be honored and glorified. The fact that it is the means of reconciliation with the living God and the means of victory over death and eternal life with Christ. He wants it to be honored by those who see it in the lives of other believers as it transforms them over time. So both the running and the glorifying are not just isolated victories or, or one dramatic triumph, but a process, a continual process, a steady and ongoing process. That's The idea is that the gospel would keep on running and keep on being glorified everywhere it went. That's the first thing that he prays for. The second thing that Paul asked his fellow servants to pray for was that he might be delivered from perverse and evil men. So the first petition was for the success of the gospel. The second is for the safety of the messengers. Now these perverse and evil men that Paul speaks about are perverse and evil because they don't believe the gospel. We've seen the opposition that Paul faced in virtually every city he went. We saw it as he came over into Macedonia, and first in the city of Philippi, then in Berea, then in Thessalonica. Most of that opposition came from his fellow kinsmen, from the Jewish people. And they, in turn, would stir up the Romans to bring opposition and to bring persecution to Paul himself. In fact, it's very likely here that Paul is asking for prayer for deliverance from Jewish opposition in Corinth. That's where he is as he writes the second letter. And we we read about that opposition that's brewing in chapter 18 of Acts. Acts 18, verses 5 and 6 says this. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. What was their reaction? And when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I'm clean. From now on I should go to the Gentiles. We, We know that Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. He always went to the Jews first. I think it makes sense as to why if he'd gone to the Gentiles first, the Jews wouldn't have given him any audience at all. So every town that he went to, the first thing he did was go to the synagogue and preach Christ there. It just was often rejected. 
Look down in verses 12 and 13 of Acts 18. This is about, but while Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, this man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. So Paul's once again facing severe Jewish opposition, even as he writes this letter. He understood that that was his lot as an ambassador for Christ. He was told that from the very beginning, that that's what he was going to face. And he didn't shrink away from his duty. At the same time, he wanted prayer. He wanted prayer for deliverance from this kind of opposition because he knew that God worked in response to the prayers of his people. You know, these are the same things that we pray for today. We pray that the gospel will continue to run freely and be glorified in every location that it goes to. We pray for the missionaries that we support, not only here through Grace Promise, but other missionaries and their ministries that we're familiar with. We pray that their ministries will flourish as they proclaim and live out the gospel wherever they are in the world. And we pray for them as they face opposition to their message. We know it's going to happen. That's just the nature of the world. That kind of missions mindset and the prayer that is such a vital part of it is something we're all responsible to do as believers. And we, we try to give you good tools to do that here at BRACA. We, we put out a missionary prayer guide every year at the conference that lists all the missionaries that we support and just gives a summary of their ministry. We have access to missionary prayer letters easier than ever in history, in my mind. I mean, one, they can send them to us electronically. They can include pictures. They can give very thorough reports. Susanna does a great job of putting those together in one report that we can send out. So we try to make it as easy as possible for all of us to keep up with their ministries. But each one of us is responsible to actually do the praying. You know, I can't make you pray. That's something that you have to do. It's a discipline, to be sure. And oftentimes the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. We, we recognize that. But I think the key is to recognize that it, it's not just a discipline. It's a privilege. It's a, a great joy that we have to pray to the God of the universe that he'll do what he's already promised to do in calling out a people for his known, own name through the proclamation of the gospel throughout the world and bring those people to salvation and ultimately to glorification in Christ. So let's be faithful and not neglect the privilege that we have in prayer, particularly for the advance of the gospel. Let's have that missions mindset. The second characteristic of the godly life is that it is strengthened and protected by God. So in contrast to these men who are perverse and evil because they do not have faith, Paul says in verse 3 that the Lord is faithful. It's the same Greek word here. He's actually using a play on words. The evil men have no faith and oppose Christ, but the Lord is faithful to those who belong to him. And God demonstrates that faithfulness. Christ demonstrates that faithfulness in two ways. First, he strengthens his godly ones. In fact, that's the very thing that Paul had prayed for earlier in chapter 2, verse 17, that the Lord would comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. That's an internal strengthening that God does by his spirit and by his word. Secondly, the Lord protects his own. In fact, he protects them specifically from the evil one, from Satan himself. I don't know if you've noticed this, if we've worked through uh, these two letters to the Thessalonians, but Satan is very prominent in both of these letters. 1 Thessalonians 2.18 says, We wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan thwarted us. 
Chapter 3, verse 5 of the first letter. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter, that's another name for Satan, might have tempted you and our labor should be in vain. And then earlier in 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, verse 9, he writes concerning the false Christ, that that is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. Now, it's clear from these verses that when Paul's talking about protection from Satan, he's not talking about an absolute protection. That is, Satan still has the ability to tempt us. He still has the ability to do us harm. That's something, in fact, that he's constantly about. That's what Satan wants to do. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, 8, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But Peter, James, and Paul all tell us how to deal with Satan. In fact, in the very next verse, in 1 Peter 5, Peter says, But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. James says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And Paul says in Ephesians 6, In addition to all, take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one. He also reminds us, Paul does, in 1 Corinthians 10, No temptation has overtaken you but such is common to man, and God is faithful. Sounds just like 2 Thessalonians 3. Who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. So like so many other aspects of the Christian life, God has a part and we have a part. God does watch over and protect us from the evil one in the midst of his attacks, not allowing us to be tempted above what we're able and providing a way of escape. But we're also responsible to resist the devil particularly through the shield of faith, that is, taking God at his word, believing in his promises, obeying, acting accordingly, and the sword of the Spirit. That's the armor that was talked about in Ephesians 6, which is the very word of God. And you think about it, that's exactly what Jesus did when he was tempted in the wilderness. He quoted scripture at at Satan. He resisted Satan, and Satan eventually fled. The third characteristic of a godly life is that it is obedient. Paul says in verse 4, We have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. Now note that the confidence is first in the Lord himself. Now Paul's he's commending the Thessalonians and they've done well, but his real confidence is first and foremost in God because he knows God indwells each one of these believers and he knows he's the one ultimately is going to work out obedience in their life. So that confidence is in the Lord and concerning the Thessalonians. He knows that the Lord will continue to sanctify these believers and to grow them in obedience. At the same time, he recognizes that the Thessalonians have already obeyed his earlier instruction to them. Their faith had grown. Their love for one another had grown. And they were remaining faithful amidst persecution. So he commends them for that obedience, and he says, keep going. Now, the, the Christian life is not a sprint. It's not a 100-yard dash. It's a marathon. It's something that you have to keep going, keep pursuing, keep looking at the ultimate prize of glorification and being in the presence of God. Obedience in the same direction over time is a hallmark of a godly life. 
And the emphasis on obedience is all over the New Testament. Jesus himself said in Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He told the twelve in John chapter 14, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then conversely, in chapter 15, he says, If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. Those two things go hand in hand. It is the means by which we express our love for God is obedience to him. James says, prove yourself doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. And Paul says, do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, he's talking about before you became a believer, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Paul longed to see ongoing obedience in the lives of those to whom he ministered. He did everything he could to encourage that. And it's the same for us. It's the same for the leaders of this church. We want more than anything, to see obedience in the lives to whom we minister the word of God. We want to say with the Apostle John, I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. So if you want to encourage those who oversee you in the faith, the best thing you can do is to live a godly life, to be obedient to the word of God. That will encourage us more than anything. The fourth characteristic of a godly life is that it is growing in the love of God. Verse 5 begins with another prayer. We've seen Paul turn to prayer. This is a prayer wish for the Thessalonians. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God. And when he says heart here, he's really talking about their total inner being. That's what the word means in Hebrew first, and, and then the concept carries over into the New Testament. He's talking about everything that's part of the non material man mind, will, emotions, all of that. But the question is, when he says the love of God, is he speaking of our love for God or God's love for us when he makes this request? The construction in Greek allows for either one of those options. And really, if you look at it, either one makes sense, right? It could be either one. But the better choice, really, is God's love for us. That's what he's wanting the Thessalonians and us to grow in. And we see that as we look at other places where Paul's... Paul talks about the love of God. Romans 5, 5. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And then again, the same construction in Romans 8. I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor death nor any other created thing should be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then the final verse in 2 Corinthians, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. All of these, all three of these, are speaking about God's love for us. And Paul's desire is that we grow in the understanding of that love because that in turn will motivate us to live a life that honors God, that's obedient to him. How do we grow in our understanding of that love? We grow in it through Time in his word. I mean, we see from his word over and over again God's great love for us. 
as we reflect upon that truth that God sent his own son to pay the price of our sins and provide the means of reconciliation. We pray and we thank God for his love for us. As we do that over time, we grow. And it does. It has to happen over time. We don't understand the love of God immediately after we're saved. We understand it to some degree, but it has to happen over a period of time. That's the way God has set it up. So as we do it over time, we mature in our understanding of the love of God, and we grow in obedience to his will for us. The fifth and final characteristic of a godly life is that it's growing in the steadfastness of Christ. Paul had already commended the Thessalonians for their steadfastness. You remember back in chapter 1, I know we've referred back there a number of times, but he talked there about their work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. That was especially important for them because they were being persecuted so strongly and because they were looking to the return of Christ as their hope. He said it earlier in the second letter as well, in chapter 1, verse 4. He says, Therefore we, are, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faithfulness or steadfastness in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Now that's a different Greek word there, but the concept is the same. It's an endurance and steadfastness in the faith. Paul knows that they'll continue to face pressure and that they'll have to grow. In their steadfastness. And he points them to the ultimate example of steadfastness, and that's Christ Himself. I want us to consider the steadfastness of Christ for just a minute. You know, part of Christ's incarnation, part of His becoming a man, was to lay aside the independent exercise of His divine attributes. So that, for example, when He was born, As a human being, as an infant, he was not omniscient. That was part of his becoming a man. He gave that up voluntarily. He voluntarily restricted himself so that he could have the full experience of a man. Otherwise, if he was already omniscient, why would would the scripture tell us that he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man? But think about the flip side of that. He grew up as a man with a mind untainted by sin. He had access to the Old Testament scriptures, and he read those scriptures even as a young child. He was interacting with the leading teachers of Israel, asking them questions, and they were asking him questions. He did grow in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men, and he came to know, I'm convinced, at a very early age, who he was and what his mission was including his death on the cross. Now, one evidence of that is very early in his public ministry, right after he had cleansed the temple for the first time, he told the Jews in John chapter 2, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, they completely misunderstood what he said. They thought he was talking about the temple building, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. He knew he was going to be killed at the end of three years, but he remained steadfast. As he began to preach the nearness of the kingdom of God and demonstrate that he was the promised Messiah, he immediately faced opposition from the leaders of the Jews. He was not even 18 months into his public ministry before the Pharisees were counseling together as to how they might destroy him. And that was an opposition that only increased 
with time. How difficult that must have been for him. He came to his own, and yet his own received him not. He's talking about the Jewish people there. And yet, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, knowing what awaited him there, and he remained steadfast. When he came to the Garden of Gethsemane on the night he was betrayed, he asked the Father three times, if there was any way, let this cup pass from me. Those were genuine requests. That was a real struggle on Jesus' part. And yet each time he prayed, not my will, but thine be done. He remained steadfast. And when he was arrested and Peter cut off the ear of the high priest slave, Jesus told Peter to put his sword away. And he reminded him, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. He could have done that. And he didn't. He remained steadfast. So Paul points the Thessalonians and us to that kind of steadfastness. I think I can safely say we'll never have to face what Christ faced. We will face opposition. There's no question about that. And the New Testament repeatedly commands us in the face of that opposition to be steadfast. I want to give you some more examples of that. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toll is not in vain in the Lord. Colossians 1, 22 and 23, Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Notice how similar that is to the message of Thessalonians. He's pointing him to the ultimate glorification that each of us has as believers in Christ. But what does he say in verse 23? If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. And then finally in 2 Peter three seventeen to 18. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, lest being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for all that you've done on our behalf to reconcile us to yourself through Christ. And we, like Paul and like those that he ministered to, we pray that the gospel would continue to run rapidly and be glorified throughout the world. Just as it has in so many places already, we know that you have your people all over the globe, that you're calling them out through the proclamation of the gospel that you're sovereignly in charge of that whole process. We thank you. Thank you for all those that have already been saved over all these years of history and all those that will be saved. We know that we can have complete confidence that all those that you've chosen will come to faith in Christ. We thank you that you are faithful and that you do strengthen us and protect us from the evil one. And you help us by your spirit by your spirit to be obedient in all things and we pray that you would grow us in our understanding of your great love for us and our understanding of the steadfastness of Christ 
And that those two things would motivate us to be steadfast ourselves and to love others and to love you the same that that you love us. Thank you for the time we've had tonight, Father. Thank you for every spiritual blessing that you've granted us in the heavenly places in Christ. I pray that our lives would reflect that as you send us out to the different places that we go each week. May we be lights for you in the world. And may we continue to grow in our love and our faithfulness to you. In Jesus' name, amen.